The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. Once again to the gathering of Harmony Bible Church. It's a great day to be in the house of the Lord this morning. To worship Him. Let's uh, go before Him in prayer. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace and for this opportunity we have now to look at Your Word. God, I pray that You would indeed be glorified. God, that You would be glorified in our words, that You would be glorified in our life, that You would be glorified in Your church. I thank You for an opportunity to gather together as a body, as a family. God, I pray and ask for Your blessing upon us as we seek to not only be hearers of Your Word, but also doers of the Word. God, I pray that we would look to Your Word this morning with an attitude and a heart that seeks to apply it to our lives, to live in light of that which we see. And God, not just to uh, learn new facts, but instead grow closer to You through it. God, I pray that we would worship You in spirit and in truth. God, I pray for the same for the churches that are meeting up and down the coast and around the world this morning, that You would indeed be glorified as they do so. And I pray, God, that each one of us would leave here different than when we came. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and today we get to the dreaded chapter 5. Many of you have... Uh, have been wondering when we would get to chapter 5. Chapter 5 deals with some interesting, uh, with an interesting topic. And we're going to try to cover all of chapter 5 today because I, it's really one unit, it's one section, and I think it's important that we cover this entire section. And then uh, my family and I are on vacation uh, next week. You can be praying for us as we travel uh, down to Virginia. So I'd appreciate your prayers for that and also pray for Matt as he'll be bringing the word next week. I'll be preaching uh, chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. So be uh, keeping him in prayer as well as he uh, prepares for that. So just a brief review, if you've been with us, you've seen as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been laying the foundation of the gospel. He's addressing this church, this church that uh, he helped plant, that he pastored for 18 months and that after he left, Apollos became the pastor. And he's addressing some concerns at the church in Corinth. Corinth was a, a busy city, a very worldly city, and a city in which the church had everything they needed to live a godly life, and yet they were struggling to do so. They were struggling to live out the Christian faith the way God called them to. And Paul writes this letter, which is uh, very corrective in nature. He corrects a lot of things going on in the church. And he lays that foundation first and then builds upon that foundation by saying, this is what the gospel says about the way you should live. And we'll see that especially as we look at chapter 5. So without further ado, let's look at our text this morning. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1-13. through 13. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, 
have already judged him who has committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or swindlers, or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so called brother, if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So Paul begins chapter 5 by pointing out a problem that existed within the church in Corinth. And the first point in our sermon outline shows us the problem, while the next three points point to the solution. So the problem, number one, the first point, is prideful tolerance. Prideful tolerance. And then we'll look at the the three points that are the solution as well. Number one, prideful tolerance. Look at verses one and two with me. Paul writes, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Paul begins by saying, it's actually reported that there's this immorality among you. In other words, it was apparently a well-known fact that this type of immoral behavior was going on within the church in Corinth. And we don't know how this information got back to Paul, but we, knew, we do know that he says it's well known. Like it's apparent that this is going on. It's, become, it's come to my attention and it's apparent to all that this is happening in the church. Now the term immorality is the Greek word pornea. And it's where we get our English word pornography. And refers specifically to sexual immorality. Thus the term is used to describe sex outside of marriage, prostitution, incest, or any other form of illicit sexual activity. So what Paul is saying is that the report of fornication, of sexual immorality by this man, and the church's lack of dealing with it, the report of that has made its way to him. And more specifically, this sexual immorality was taking place between a man and his father's wife, which may refer either to his mother 
or to his stepmother. We don't know for sure. We can't tell from the text. And neither do we know whether this man's father had died or whether he's still alive. But either way, Paul makes it clear that this type of behavior, sexual relations with one's father's wife, is clearly unacceptable. And he says so much so, he doesn't even quote the Old Testament. He could have easily quoted the Old Testament and said, you know, this is wrong. As a side note, um, Leviticus 18, 7-8 clearly condemns this kind of behavior. If you want to look that up, we're not going to read it. As does Deuteronomy 22, verse 30. That clearly this kind of behavior is condemned in the Old Testament, but he doesn't even need to quote the Old Testament. He says, even the Gentiles who are foolish, he's made this whole argument throughout 1 Corinthians, they're foolish, they're without God's wisdom, right? They recognize it as wrong. In other words, it's naturally abhorrent. It's inappropriate. And he says, and this sin is written on your hearts. It's written on the hearts of the Gentiles. You see, and it's because of this ongoing, unrepentant sin. And we know it's ongoing and unrepentant, by the way, because Paul says that this man has his father's wife. He doesn't say this man had his father's wife, if that's not bad enough, right? He doesn't say this man had his father's wife. He says this man has his father's wife. But the situation would be much different if this man had sinned, had repented of that sin, turned away from it, and was now living apart from that sin. Instead, he says this man has. He's continuing in this sin. It's because of this ongoing unrepentant sin that he makes the argument that the church as a whole should have disciplined this man. They should have removed him from their midst. In other words, Paul is telling them that the warning regarding discipline that he issued in uh, chapter 4, verse 21 that we read last week, that it should have already been fulfilled. He says, I shouldn't need to come to you and say, should I come with a rod? He says, you should have already done this. That this is a clear issue. You should have already dealt with it. The Corinthian believers had the responsibility to do all that they could to bring this erring brother to a place of repentance. Because that's what true love does. You know, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you have a little child, you know that when your child runs out into the road, you stop the child. Right? You, you stop the child. You do whatever you need to do to get the child to stop running in the road. And you know that that discipline may hurt the child. You know that when you grab the child by the arm and you yank them back in, away from the road, that you may pull their arm out of joint. But that's not your concern. Your concern is the car that's coming their way. And Paul says you should have done everything you could do to correct this erring brother. Because that's what love does. Yet that's not at all what happened in Corinth. The idea of church discipline, by the way, as we kind of talk through this, is not looked upon very favorably. Um, And that's understandable. For discipline is, as Scripture says, unpleasant. It's very unpleasant. And yet it's necessary. When I... um, first candidated here, one of the questions that I asked was, does the church believe in church discipline? Um, Not because I want to be the guy who's like, 
uh, looking behind, looking under every rock, seeing like, well, hey, what's, what's this person hiding? And what's that person hiding? And, and where can we seek to, to punish people and put them out of the church? But instead to say, a church that is serious about loving one another must be serious about disciplining one another. It's one of the first things I asked Bill was, is this church serious about discipleship? Because discipleship and discipline go hand in hand. And not only do I want to pastor a church like that, I need a church like that. I need a church that says, Jason, you're wrong in this. You need to repent. You've gone off off track here. You're not loving your wife the way you should. You're not treating your kids the way you should. You're not doing your job at work the way you should. And then calls me to account for the way I live my life. See, Scripture teaches that discipline may not be pleasant, but it is necessary. That's why Hebrews 12, verses 4-13 through say this. It says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals, with you, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? We've all seen children who are not disciplined. Right? Verse 8, But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much more rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, these earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But He, God, disciplines us for our good so that we might share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards, maybe not during, but afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The author of Hebrews says, God disciplines us for our good. That He's a good Father who loves His children and we recognize that that is for our good and that it trains us up in righteousness and holiness. We need that discipline. And in the same way, the church is called to live out that discipline, to be instruments of that discipline that God brings into our lives. So now I want you to notice that Paul makes an interesting assertion here in 1 Corinthians 5. I've really wrestled with this this week. He says that it is because of arrogance that this man is being, continu- is being allowed to continue in his sin. He says it's because of arrogance. And we normally think of church discipline and, and the fact that it's avoided, and I would argue that it is often avoided, right? That it's often avoided not because of arrogance, but because of humility. And the typical reason for not following through with church discipline is usually something like, well, we're all sinners. Who are we to point the finger at such and such? Who am I 
to say that someone needs to be corrected. Look at my life. Yet the man who called himself the chief of all sinners, that's what Paul called himself, he says, I, on my part, have already judged him who has so committed this. He says, I may be the chief of all sinners, but I have already judged him. His point is clear. The one who has done this deed should have been removed from the church. But that it was pride that prevented them from doing so. He says, you have tolerated wickedness within the church. You have not mourned. And the word mourn, by the way, is a, it's a picture of grieving over the loss of a loved one. It's a picture of when your spouse dies or one of your parents dies. It's a picture of grieving over that loss. He says, you should have mourned. But instead of doing that, you're prideful. You should have been weeping and crying and struggling with the fact that this brother was acting this way. And yet, you are prideful. You're puffed up. So the question we need to wrestle with is, what is the connection between pride and failing to discipline? Well, Some commentators argue that many in Corinth were pridefully arguing for an increase in sin so that grace may abound. We see that in Romans where... Uh, Some might say, well, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? I don't think that's at all what uh, was being argued here. In fact, I think in Romans, just the opposite is argued. I think they're saying, so what? Should we just go on sin? I think they're saying it uh, sarcastically, if you will. Uh, Another commentator say that maybe they thought their close connection to Paul or Apollos or other well-known teachers meant that they felt as though they could sin and get away with it. You know, Paul was our pastor. We're the church in Corinth, right? We have these gifts. We have sign gifts. We're able to heal. We can speak in tongues. Paul planted our church. Apollos was our pastor. We're okay. Don't don't be telling us about sin. But I don't think either one of these explanations really fit the text fully. Instead, what I think Paul is getting at is that statements like, well, we're all sinners. And... Who are we to judge that those statements are not an indication of humility, but instead an indication of pride? Because instead of agreeing with God's judgment, they make their own judgment. In other words, the believers in Corinth were were pridefully placing themselves in the place of lawmaker. They were making that which God said was unacceptable, acceptable. You know, yesterday I heard from... uh, family member who is also a pastor, I heard from him talking about a pastor of one of America's largest churches who said, I have to disagree with the church fathers. I have to disagree with the church fathers and with the apostles. They were dead wrong on some issues. This is a pastor of one of America's largest churches said this. They were dead wrong on some issues. When we get to the issues of homosexuality, when we get to issues such as abortion and things that we see in our culture today, they were wrong because they lived in a different time and they didn't understand the culture in which we live. They couldn't understand that culture. And by doing so, that pastor places himself as lawmaker. He says, this law is meaningless and my law is meaningful. See, they were making that which God said was unacceptable Acceptable. 
You see, Paul said in Ephesians 1, 5 through 11, he said, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not be even named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving, giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. And this pastor is deceiving with empty words. He says, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly in darkness, but now you are, the, you are light in the world. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead, even expose them. Bring them to light. That is what God says. Human wisdom doesn't say, as Ephesians 5 says, immorality, impurity, greed, filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting, covetousness, idolatry. Those things, they bring about the wrath of God. Human wisdom doesn't say that. Human wisdom doesn't say, therefore, those things not even be named among the saints. Instead, human wisdom says, come on, we all struggle with those things. Who am I to point the finger? And it sounds humble. It really does. It sounds humble. And I could stand up here week after week and sound humble by saying, we all struggle with filthiness and silly talk and coarse jesting and covetousness and idolatry. But it's actually pride. It's proud to talk that way because it's placing oneself as the determiner of right and wrong rather than God. God says, these things shouldn't even be named among the saints. I drive by a church, and I don't mean to, I don't want to pick on the church because my Christ died for the church, Christ died for his bride. So I want to be careful. Far be it from me to slander his bride. Right? So I want to be very careful here. So when I say I drive past a church, I really believe this, that it's a building. Not, not a church as in the gathering of believers, but I drive past this building that's white and it has a steeple. Right? And when I drive past this building that I drive past frequently, there's this bright rainbow flag touting gay pride outside of this church. And this church has said, we know more than God. That what the scripture, We know what the Scripture says. They must know what the Scripture says about homosexuality. But they've decided instead that God is wrong and therefore they, they are right. Or to use the example of an uh, example we discussed in Sunday school, that one one church we discussed this past week where the, the pastor said there are many roads to heaven. That To say Jesus is the only way is too exclusive. It's too narrow. And to say that is to say, God, you are wrong and I am right. 
So when we say, who am I to point the finger and say what's right or what's wrong, it's really not humble, but instead it's prideful. It's saying, I will not accept what God says. I'm going to determine what's right or what's wrong. Instead, true humility says, I'm going to accept what this book says. I'm going to accept that His ways are not my ways, that His thoughts are not my thoughts, that He knows far more than I know, and that He is right and I am wrong. That should be our natural assumption when it comes to such things. So having seen the the first point in our sermon outline, the problem, the problem was prideful tolerance. That they were tolerating sin. It looked humble, but it was really rooted in pride. Now let's consider the solution. The solution. There's three points to the solution. So, just think, we're a quarter of the way through. Three points to the solution. Number one, humble correction. Number two, celebratory living. And number three, rightful judging. So we're going to look at the first point. Humble correction. Paul gives them clear instructions. In verses 4-5, through he says this, In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The NASB muddies the waters a bit here with the phrase, I have decided. It adds the phrase, I have decided, but this is not in the original text. If you're looking at the New American Standard, you'll notice that uh, I have decided is italicized. And whenever you see something italicized like that, what that means is that it's been added for clarity. The authors don't see it in the original text, it's not there, but they add it for the sake of clarity so you can understand what is being said. But I think they missed the mark here. All the other English translations don't add that phrase. And I don't think it helps. I think what he's saying is, in verses 4-5, through in the name of the Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan. That's the the thrust of the text. In the name of Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan. So let me say this a different way. Let me say verses 4-5 through differently. He says, deliver such a one as this erring brother to Satan. And here's how I want you to do this. Number one, do this in the name of the Lord Jesus and with His power. In other words, do it in in accordance with His will and by His strength. That's how you're to deliver this one to Satan. Number two, do this when you're assembled together. Do this as a body, as a community. Going to the point last week that it's not me who disciplines, it's not Bill who disciplines, the church exercises discipline as a body. It's not something that happens in a, in a room inside of Bill's house. It's not something that happens at Bill's kitchen table or my kitchen table where Bill and Mark and I decide that Sue needs to be disciplined. Instead, it is something that the church owns. The church does it when we gather together. Do this when you are assembled together. So he says, Deliver such a one to Satan. Do it in the name of the Lord Jesus and with His power. Do it when you're assembled together. And number three, do this for the destruction of His flesh. He says, so that His fleshly desires might be destroyed. It's unclear whether the Greek here is fleshly desires as in sinful desires, or maybe even fleshly as in physical body. And I believe it might be both. Right? Do this so that His flesh 
might be destroyed. So that his sinful desires might be destroyed even if it leads to death. That maybe this person will experience such pain, physical pain, that it leads to death. That maybe they'll go through such trials. Paul says that's not the concern. Far more concerned with his spirit than his flesh. And number four, do this so that his spirit, to that point, may be saved. So that he may repent and turn to the Lord. You see, there's intentionality and purpose to delivering one to Satan. It's the gracious, loving thing to do. Because the church is exercising the power that God has given her to rescue an erring brother. So the question is, why does Paul refer to separating themselves from this man, to disciplining this man as putting him out from their midst? Why does he refer to that as delivering him over to Satan? What Paul is talking about here is removing this man from the blessing and the protection of the covenant community of the church. The picture is of a child who's been warned of the effects of eating too much candy. He's been warned again and again and again. Or me, who's been warned again and again on Super Bowl Sunday, right? So I've been, I've been warning myself all day of the effects of eating too much tonight. My wife will probably warn me. And at some point, she'll put me outside the protective covenant community and hand me over to Satan. And that's what the, the, the picture is. It's of a, a parent saying to a child, fine, have as much candy as you want. And it's November 1st, it's the day after the devil's holiday, and, and the, the child eats all the candy they can possibly eat. And what happens? They get sick. And hopefully they learn their lesson. That's the picture that's painted here. Hand him over to Satan. Give him to the world. Let him have his fill of the world. And maybe, maybe he'll turn back once he's outside of that protection of the church. Thus the handing over of one to Satan is not an act of retribution. It's an act of love. It's not an act of pride, but an act of humility. It's an act that says, I must humbly submit to my Father and what He has called me to do, and it's going to pain me to do this, and I'm going to watch you go through pain. But I must do it to see that this person is restored so that they may say, it's not good for me to live outside the covenant community of the church. The decisions I have made have brought me to a horrible place so that they may say with the prodigal son, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and that they may too be restored. See, there's intentionality and purpose behind it. So having seen the problem is prideful tolerance and then the solution is first, humble correction. Now we see the second point in the solution, celebratory living. The second point in the solution is celebratory living. Look at verses 6-8 through eight with me. It says this, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as, in fact, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast Not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The words that I want to jump off the page at you this morning is this. 
Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate. That is the the thrust of verses 6-8. through Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate. And it's a a clear reference back to Exodus 12. Exodus 12, I debated reading this. I'm going to read uh, verses 1-15 through instead of trying to explain uh, Exodus 12 and the Passover. I'm just going to read it for you. Exodus 12, verses 1-15. through Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night roasted with fire and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather toasted, roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. You shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. You shall be ready to go when you eat it. For I will go with you, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses, for whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And see, all of this is a picture. It's a picture of what is to come. It's a picture of the true and better Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ, who was the once and for all perfect sacrifice for our sins. The One who died in our place so that we might no longer be slaves not to Egypt, but slaves to sin, so that we might be rescued from death by His blood. Not by the blood of a lamb, but by the blood of the perfect lamb, Jesus Christ. See, Paul is painting a beautiful picture for the Corinthian believers to see. He's connecting the leaven with sin, and he's saying, you're unleavened. You've been made right with God. Your sin has been forgiven. Instead of of celebrating the old Passover once a year, by removing the leaven, the yeast from your homes for seven days, he says... Instead of doing that, now you are to celebrate the Passover provided by the Lamb of God, 
Jesus. And you're to do so continually by removing sin from your lives once and for all. You're no longer tainted by leaven. You are unleavened. He says you have been made perfect. Now Paul's point in saying all that is not to say, so now you must be perfect. His point is not, now you must be perfect without sin ever again, because he knows that will never be the case. Instead, his point is that because they have been made new, since they've been given a new life and have been liberated from the power of sin, they should no longer subject themselves to slavery. He's saying, don't let your old sinful habits permeate your new life like yeast permeates dough. And neither should you let sinful behaviors permeate and corrupt the church as a whole. He's saying, celebrate. For Christ, our Passover, has been crucified to make you pure. You have been made pure in the eyes of God. Therefore, live pure lives. Kill sin. Get rid of it. Don't let sin permeate your lives individually or corporately any longer. So having seen the solution, number one, humble correction, and number two, celebratory living, now we see, number three, rightful judging. Part of the solution is, thirdly, rightful judging. Look at verses 9-13 through with me. We're almost there. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves." This is where I think the passage really hits home, especially to the church today. There's no question that the environment in which the church in Corinth was living was corrupt and evil. It was an environment not that much different from the environment we live in today, really. And it was within that context that the church pridefully became more concerned with what was happening outside of the walls of the church than what was happening inside of the walls. Look at the list that Paul says. Paul gives. He says, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called, right? I love that phrase is so clear. So-called. He's saying, we're not really sure whether these people are believers. They may call themselves believers, and I'm not sure that this man is a believer. And when we get to 2 Corinthians, I believe the person that he encourages them to welcome back into fellowship is this man. And I believe that he was a believer and repented of his sin. We don't know that for sure. But he says, at this point, we don't know. He's a so-called believer. And that's how we need to deal with people who do not act as believers, who act in this way. Don't associate with any so-called believer if he is an immoral person, one who participates in sexual activity that doesn't conform to biblical standards. Or if he is covetous, one who constantly desires more. Or he is an idolater, one whose lips are full of cursing and insults. Or he's a drunkard, one who habitually drinks too much. Or he's a swindler, one who robs people of their possessions. So if you're sitting here and you've been saying, well, this passage really isn't that applicable. I mean, the type of sin this man committed, it doesn't really exist today. 
We really don't see much of that today. Well, first of all, I want to say, really? Really? I've, I've sat behind a desk and I've had a man come to me and say, uh, I need to tell you something. Uh, I've been in a relationship with my stepdaughter and my wife knows about it and encouraged me in this relationship. And this is in church. So when you say, this doesn't happen today, I say, I assure you, this does happen today. And I assure you that a little leaven right, can permeate the whole lump. That today it's one small step and we turn on the TV and we watch something we shouldn't. We participate in a conversation we shouldn't. And before we know it, sin has permeated our lives. But by the grace of God, go I. We need to be careful. Secondly, and by the way, even the world says that kind of sin is wrong. I see the eyebrows raised, and even the world says, come on, that's wrong. That's what we see here. And secondly, you say, alright, well even that's one obscure case. Paul not only lists sexual immorality, but also covetousness, idolatry, idolatry, drunkenness, etc. Paul's point is that all sin is ugly. Can you believe he links covetousness and idolatry with sleeping with your father's wife? He says, you're an idolater. And I'm linking that with sleeping with your father's wife, with your stepmom. Because sin is ugly. We need to battle it individually and collectively. We need to clean it out. We need to clean out the yeast of sexual immorality, the yeast of greed, the yeast of idolatry, the yeast of slander, the yeast of drunkenness, the yeast of fraud. We need to clean out the yeast of sin by calling sin, sin, and not excusing it. Not just gross sins of sexual immorality, but also the sins we might have a tendency to tolerate. Sins like slander or gossip or idolatry, football, and greed, money. As Alistair Begg has said, anytime a church doesn't mourn over sin, especially sin in its own ranks, it totters on the brink of extinction. The one way, the one way, or one of the ways to bring down the ministry of this church is for us to no longer mourn over sin. So to review, the problem, the problem was prideful tolerance. And the solution, Paul gives three solutions. He says, solution number one, humble correction. Number two, celebratory living. And number three, rightful judging. Focus on the inside, not the outside. Focus on defeating sin within the church. Not so much on what's happening outside of the walls of the church. So how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and collectively, specifically apply all of this? Well, number one, we must avoid the problem of prideful tolerance. We must avoid that problem of prideful tolerance. We must not think of ourselves as wiser than God, and we must not call right that which He declares as wrong. We must examine the Scriptures and seek to live in light of them, both as individuals and as a body. And if we are going to do this, we must be willing to examine our own lives and eradicate sin. We must be willing to remove the log from our own eyes so that we can help our brothers remove the speck from theirs. That's the whole point of that passage. 
We want to believe that the passage is saying, well, we've all got logs in our eyes, so we walk around bumping into people with these logs. Oh, excuse me. Oh, my log. Whoa, my log. That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is get the log out of your eye so that you can remove the speck from your brother's eye. Your brother's got a speck, so get the log out so that you can help him. So we must avoid the problem of prideful tolerance. Number two, we must pursue humble correction. We must speak truth into each other's lives. And we must be willing to let others speak truth into ours. That's hard, and I struggle with that. I struggle with that so much. Accountability can no longer be a cute word we throw around to make ourselves feel good. It can't be. But it must be practiced and lived out. We must hold fast to the covenant we have made with one another to spur one another on to love and good deeds. We must be willing to take whatever steps necessary to rescue a brother who is drowning in sin. In humility, we must be willing to both correct and be corrected. Thirdly, we must pursue celebratory living. We must live out what we have been made in Christ to be. We must remember Christ, our Passover, has been crucified. And then live in light of that truth. We, we no longer need to let sin permeate our lives like yeast permeates dough. Instead, living lives of, instead of living lives of malice and wickedness, we can by grace live lives of purity. We must recognize that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, we should stand firm and not be subject to a, again to a yoke of slavery, the yoke of slavery of sin. And number four, we must pursue rightful judging. Instead of pridefully investigating the stench that's emanating from the world, we must examine the garbage heaps of our own lives. We spend far too much time. I don't, maybe not collectively as a church. I think when we gather, we do a pretty good job. But I'm sure that if you're like me in your personal life, spend too much time examining the stench that's coming from the world and not enough time examining the garbage heap of your own life. We need to spend less time complaining about the sins that they are committing and more time battling our sin. While we should not call that which is wrong right, don't hear me say that. Don't hear me say that we don't say that things that are going on in the world is right. I am saying that we would do well to see that our own marriages are honoring to the Lord before decrying the moral decline of the world. Before pointing to the world and saying, marriage is in trouble. We should look to our own lives and say, is my marriage in trouble? Rather than turning on the 6 o'clock news and wagging our heads about how wretched they are, we would do well to open our Bibles and see how wretched we are. So there's a danger in all of this. And here's the danger. We must do all these things with the Gospel in the forefront of our minds. We can't lose sight of the Gospel. And what I don't want is I don't want to walk out of here saying, there's no use, there's no hope, wretched man that I am. We say instead, walking out of here, wretched man that I am, but glorious God that He is that He saved me, that He made me His, He called me to be His own, and He has allowed me to live a life in purity for His glory. 
We must never get to the place where we think we must clean up our lives so that we can be right with God. That's not the point. Instead, we must remember that it was Jesus who made us right. And it was by His blood that He made us right with the Father. And that He is the one who gives us victory over sin and the grace to live for Him. So let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace. God, give us a passion. Give us a passion to battle our pride. To never stand before You and say, we are right and You are wrong. But instead to say, Lord, I humbly submit to You. I give my life to You. Lord, give us the grace that we need to live in light of Your truth. God, I praise You that if we have been made right with You, that if we are followers of Your Son, Jesus, that indeed we can live lives of purity. That Your power lives within us and enables us to do so. It enables us. That Your power helps us battle sin. God, I praise You that we have been given the the greatest power known to this world, the power to say no to sin. And it is only, only by grace. God, I pray that You would make that power known to us more and more every day. Help us to be passionate. Help us to hold each other accountable. Help us to live in light of these truths. And help us to rely on the strength that You provide more and more each and every day. Father, we praise You for the work You are doing in us and through us, not because of us, but in spite of us, and not for our glory, but for Yours. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and we invite you to connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. God bless you. And to God be the glory.